Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift Vieira's Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight only on Disney Plus. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host Frank Santo Padre at the legendary Friars Club. Today, we're joined by an actor, musician, singer, director, radio personality, and one of the stars of a historic, groundbreaking TV show. He also happens to be a genuine show business and pop culture icon. Welcome the drummer and lead singer of the Monkees, the great Mickey Dolenz. <laughs> Whoa, what an intro. Could you louder? louder? <laughs> well, I figure you're old. I you're know the hearing. Going. What? Yeah. Great pop? Popcorn? Popcorn I Kanaka? Pop what? <laughs> And I a popcorn icon icon I acorn a pop acorn <laughs> popcorn acorn. So you're basically turning into Jerry Lewis. Yes, popcorn icon. Lady, <laughs> lady. Funny, I just did that character um, uh, a couple about a month ago. I just did a, a play in uh, in Connecticut at a uh, summer stock uh, theater, a very famous one called the Iverton Theater. And um, uh, the first summer stock theater in the country. And I did a new play by Mike Reese, a writer for a producer for The Simpsons. We had him on the show. You're kidding yeah, me. Yeah, he was one of our guests. He wrote this new play. Funny I guy. read it. I, I begged to do it. I did it in, in, at Iverton with Joyce the Wit mm-hmm. from um, sure. uh, Three's Company. Company. Wonderful, wonderful actress. And I, play, and I don't know why they thought of me, but I played an 84-year-old Jewish comedian. <laughs> and I don't know where it came from. I was channeling Shecky Green and, and Rodney Dangerfield. And, hey, that's comedy. <laughs> we, we, we did this wonderful play, a two-hander with me and Joyce. Joyce and I, excuse me. And uh, we just finished. And to rave reviews, I'm told. I don't read reviews, but... Rave reviews, and uh, yeah, I don't know where that comes from. What was Jerry the- Lewis. I was I was brought up on Jerry Lewis, and Shelley Berman, and, and uh, you know D- Danny Kay, Red Skelton. You know what was the name of the play? Me, comedy is hard, mm-hmm. and it's about this eighty-four-year-old Jewish comedian in a wheelchair, and Joyce DeWitt plays a Broadway diva, 
in a wheelchair and we're in a home. It's very like very Neil Simon esque. Wow. Kind of thing. Oh, like, it's just the funniest thing I've. And it's funny that you mentioned Shelley Berman. Were you in a Shelley Berman movie? I absolutely was. <laughs> it, it was called Keep Off My Grass. And a very gallant attempt in the, like in the, uh, would have been early 70s or mid 70s, to do a movie about weed and, mm-hmm. and about these hippies in a bus. And I don't remember <laughs> what it was about much, but to do that back then, it was, I thought it was kind of weird that they even got it made. I don't know how, or distributed, but Shelley Berman had never directed and he was asked to direct. And I loved him. And, Basic, frankly, it, he was one of the reasons I agreed to do the movie uh, because I was a huge fan. I mean, uh, that was a little before your time, right? <laughs> <laughs> I remember Shelley Berman. <laughs> I, I, yes. you know, uh, wear your seatbelt so only the top half of you flies through the front of the plane. <laughs> oh, oh, God. Remember that? She- she- Shelley- oh, yes. Yeah. And Shelley Berman... I think always hated Bob Newhart because he felt <laughs> that the Bob Newhart stole the phone bit from him. Yeah. <laughs> so they asked me to do this movie playing this like weird hippie kid. It was just post monkeys. And I played this like weird kind of hippie, you know, kid that wanted to grow weed or something like that. It, it was an okay movie. It was, you know. But I'll never forget she- Shelley, who was so funny, and I, I just adored him. But he'd never directed before. And hope he doesn't mind me telling. He lives where I live, near, right near where I live. Hope he doesn't mind me telling this story. But he got on the set and had never directed anything. And this was when there were real cameras like, BNCs, you know, the 35 millimeter thing on the dolly and the tracking and stuff. And these cameras had a huge lens thing and a high. And in the first day of shooting, he goes and he looks in the wrong end of the camera. (laughs) (laughs) I can't see anything. That's a bad start. And the, the, the cinematographer has, excuse me, Mr. Berman, that's the other side of the camera. You know, since you mentioned Jerry Lewis, Mick, we have to talk real quick about how your parents were actors, which I found out doing research, and that your dad, George Dolans, worked with uh, Dean and Jerry. Oh, absolutely, and st- scared stiff. But he'd done a lot of work. I mean, even before that, he he did pretty well for himself. He was off the boat, uh, Italians. Yeah. He swam from Cuba <laughs> to get to really? the States or something like that. <laughs> Some, you know, crazy story. Uh and wanted to be an actor and, and um, worked his way in the restaurant business to Los Angeles. And, and um, then was, he did a, was doing plays and local, I guess, stuff in L.A. And, uh, in the early 40s. Met my mom, who was also an actress. Right. They met doing a play. Your mom's name was Janelle Johnson. Janelle Johnson. Right. And right. They, they, uh, they met doing a play. Um, he was working as the maitre d' at the Trocadero, which was a very, very famous upmarket, big-time club restaurant thing like the Copacabana or something like that in, in Los Angeles. And the story goes that – and he was an act, uh, trying to get acting work, and he was in the men's room, and Howard Hughes walks in. And I guess they're taking a pee together. <laughs> and Howard – Hughes asked him, what are you doing? He says, I'm an actor. And he signed him. Right, signed him to RKO. Signed him to, and he did a, wow. like one big movie called, I think, uh, what's it called? Vendetta? 
I can't remember. But he was under contract for for a number of years, and of course never worked because Howard Hughes never made sure. any, well, any actual movies he, except one or two. He wound up making a few films with Edward G. Robinson. He oh, made yeah. Bullet for Joey and, yeah, oh, yeah. and Donna Reed I, and Henry Fonda. I think that Fonda. was like after the Howard Hughes. Oh, okay. Thing. Uh, he made oh he made quite a few movies, and, and then his big sorry. Oh no, I would say oh go ahead. His big claim to fame would have been the Count of Monte Cristo, the series in the fifties. Yeah. No, Frank and I were talking that your mother was in a movie with the great Rondo Hatton. Yep. Yeah, the Brute Man. Yeah. Yeah. And for those who don't know Rondo Hatton, he was a guy suffering a disease called acromegaly. That's right. That made people grow really big. <laughs> Elephantitis. Yes. Yeah. Kind of. yeah. The Elephant Man is about that. So yeah. he was like uh, a guy who needed no makeup for horror films. Wasn't, didn't he... <laughs> Didn't he, cheap, wasn't he exposed cheap. to some kind of gas in the that's, war? That, that led to uh, thing. That, that wouldn't cause that no, disease. Huh? That's, yeah. No, I, I think that's a that's genetic uh, DNA thing. And so he got and, horror parts, the poor thing, because he was he was he had these deformities. And and I think the English guy in uh, the Jeffersons, like oh George, that guy had had it. Oh really? You mean yeah. Bentley, uh, Bentley, Mr. Bentley? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I think that was what they called ele- elephantitis, which the elephant man, uh, you know, oh, gigant- famous, gigantism. What's his name? John. Uh, John Merrick. John Merrick. Yeah. I believe that was the same thing. My mom used to talk about that, and she talked about that actor, and she said, yeah, she did that movie. So she was an actress, yep. And they met, and then she started having kids, and she she bailed out of the uh, the entertainment uh, you know part of it. But my dad, you know, went on and had a wonderful uh, five star restaurant in Los Angeles, and did the Count of Monte Cristo series. About the same time, I was doing Circus Boy. So you're a showbiz kid. Just oh, I'm right, born and raised. Right, I mean, I'm. Right. I thought everybody's father was an actor. <laughs> on on you know on on Parent Day, they'd say, "What does your father do?" He gets shot by fake bullets and falls <laughs> off a horse. <laughs> That's the first time I saw him in a movie called Wings of the Hawk. Well, Howard, you, uh, I don't know if that was a Howard Hawks movie. And he was like this evil Mexican captain something in the <laughs> Spanish-American War. And he's like getting shot with all these fake bullets and falling off a horse. And I'm there going, Daddy, you okay? Now, now then jumping ahead... After the success of A Hard Day's Night and Help, uh, they they decided uh, to do, I guess, an Americanized uh, Beatles. Well, it depends who you ask. You know, yeah. the 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 uh, <clears throat> it's not that's not from, from what I understand. That's not exactly what happened. Don't Humphrey. contradict me. It's my <laughs> it's your it's show. My fucking yeah, show, okay, Gilbert. You. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely right. Okay, end of interview. Goodbye. <laughs> if um, I get your name wrong, we're going to stick with that way. Um, the story I heard was uh, uh, a little more complicated. But essentially, yes, that, that is what happened. But it, the story behind that is, even, I, I think, is very interesting. Bob Rafelson, who was kicking around town as a writer, director, uh, guy, and he had worked as a roadie or something for a pop, uh, a folk band, a folk group in the early 60s or late 50s even. And he had been trying to pitch this show around uh, L.A., a TV show, about the behind-the-scenes roadies of a folk group touring, 
you know, and he'd been to Mexico or been all around. Mm-hmm. And he tried to pitch this show, and it, it didn't fly. Nobody wanted to do it. And then the Beatles hit. And he hooked up, I guess, with Bert Schneider, whose father happened to be Abe Schneider of, of Columbia Pictures. And the Beatles, mo- the Beatles came out, and the whole pop British invasion, the whole hippie culture. And they said, let's take your idea and just put them in bell bottoms instead of, you know, jeans, I guess, or something, and make it about this particular generation and, and, and culture. But somewhere along the line, they said, but it's got to be funny and it's got to be lighthearted. And so they, they, they modeled the humor and the sensibility much more on the Marx Brothers than the Beatles. And it was actually John Lennon. Oop, did I drop that name? (laughs) (laughs) Who said to me once, I like the monkeys, I like the Marx Brothers. And ultimately, it was, was, yeah, he got it. Yeah. Yeah. And there were a lot of people that got it. You know, Frank Zappa got it. You know, he was on the show. Sure. And and so those kind of people got it. It wasn't so much about the Beatles or or like the monkeys was a television show about a band, an imaginary band that wanted to be the Beatles, but never were. We never made it on the television show. We were never successful on the show. It was the struggle for success that spoke to all those kids out there, all that generation that were in their garages and living rooms and and, play, and basements trying to be the Beatles. And we had a poster in, in on the set of the Beatles, and we would throw darts at it. <laughs> but that's kind of what it was about. It was much more musical theater. It was like a Marx Brothers, a 30-minute Marx Brothers musical. There's different different stories about the origin. I mean, I read something today that Ray Fulson, like you said, was was trying as as early as 62. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Hard Day's Night doesn't happen for another two years, if, in fact, that's true. I also read that that they tried – originally there was an impulse to do it with an existing band, like The Love and Spoonful. Yep, that's true. I heard that. They were looking at – that was – but by that time it was casting. They already had the idea. The, the pilot script had been written. I have the pilot script. My character on the, in the script is like Steve or something, <laughs> you know, or Biff or Bongo or something. Um, and they were looking at that, you know. And the audition process was, you know, intense. It was, it was. I, I remember it as almost being months. It probably wasn't, but for an audition process for a TV series, it was intense. I mean, it went on. Excuse me. I was up for two or three different pilots that year, music pilots, uh-huh. pop music. There was one about a folk group like uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary that actually went to pilot, and I can't remember the name of it, but it, it did go to pilot but didn't sell. And then one about like a, a surfer band like the Beach Boys. I was up for that. And then another one like um, – uh, like a new Christy Minstrel's big family, the the, the Mighty Wind. <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, sure. <laughs> Great movie. Uh, big family thing with all these you know singers and stuff that I think eventually kind of became Partridge Family okay. years later. Well, I was supposedly loosely, loosely based on the cow cells, the yeah. Partridge Family. Yeah. yeah. And, and and this this was, you know, I think, well, pre-cow cells right. would have been 65. Sure, sure, so. sure. <clears throat> but they didn't sell. But the monkeys, you know, who knows why, just like clicked and they sold it. The audition process, you had to sing, you had to play, you had to dance, you had to improvise. You had to, they were heavily on the improvisation. 
Jim Frawley, who was one of the, uh, the directors uh, of, eventually of the show, wonderful, wonderful director and guy named uh, James Frawley, uh, won the Emmy for um, Alan McBeal pilot years later. He directed a, a, nor- a lot of the episodes, and they brought him in after they sold the pilot and taught us improv because we didn't know. So it was heavily weighted towards improv. But even in the audition process, it was an improv whole screen test and then lines and scene study and and screen tests and uh, and then playing. My audition piece was Johnny Be Good on the guitar because I was a guitar player. Um, and... <clears throat> Excuse me. Interviews and 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 then combining us with all the other characters. But by the time I remember the uh, you know the, I was in school at the time. Yeah, we were. Gil and I were talking about it. Yeah. You you were leaving show business and you wanted to be an architect. Because you yeah. you had been in Circus Boy. Yep. And then after that, I think your parents decided. Yeah. Yeah. David. <laughs> Dave, do you mind? <laughs> Friend of mine. Um, yeah, that was uh, that's true. My parents, um, uh, you know, having both been in the business, but we lived a very non-business life. We lived way out in the San Fernando Valley on a ranch, and I had horses and. You know, we. My dad was old school. You know, like I said, off the boat from Italy, and we didn't live the Hollywood Beverly Hills thing at all. We, we, uh, you know, I got up, and, you know, during Circus Boy, and I'd go out and have to muck out the horses and and stuff. And um, after Circus Boy, I they sent me to an educational counselor, which that's what they said it was. Basically, it was a shrink, and I remember taking Rorschach tests and. Uh, you know, why are all these pictures of my mother? <laughs> and um, I guess he said, you probably should get him out of the business now. Interesting. Or something like that. And because um, I was offered another show, so, so the story goes, of a new show called Cabin Boy, which was about, a, I guess, a Treasure Island kind of boy in, on a ship in the... Interesting. It, you know, some kind of a Treasure Island thing. And thank God they took me out because looking back, you know, this, the initial success of a child star is not the problem. It's the aftermath when at 13 you're a has-been. Right. You know, puberty's tough enough. Well, uh, when do you get the I, monkeys? I mean, there's a stretch there. Oh, yeah. Ten, I, I ten, think, years. ten years. I think Danny Bonaducci said, being a child star is great. It's being a former child star that's terrible. Absolutely perfect. And I know Danny, and that's absolutely perfect. A former child star, if you try, I think, it's a generality, but if you try to make the transition and live it and try to keep your career going and try to keep your thing. Shirley Temple is about the, well, and she just bailed. <laughs> she just, right. yeah. just, I'm going to be a something diplomat. else with her life. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> um, it's, that's the hard part because it's tough enough going through puberty and, and, and growing up and being a teenager for anybody to do it as a has been and uh, a, almost like a mascot, you know, this kind of, you know, novelty, uh, it, it, it must be brutal. And so my parents, 
at some point said, no, nope, he's not going to do anymore. He's going back to high school, going back to school. And I did. Next day, like the day after the show wrapped almost, I was back at a public school, my blonde roots growing out, you know, from my bleached hair for the show. And, and I was back in school and didn't do anything for years, showbiz-wise. And I don't remember caring much. It was like, you know. Just... And I just recently saw some something on the Internet that was doing one of these things saying, Ch- former child stars, look how horrible they look now. And it's like you look at the pictures and then now and you go, well, they just aren't five years old anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good old journalism. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So an ad Good goes old uh, exploitive, you know, an ad- extra, extra. <laughs> is all that. An ad goes out in Daily Variety for this new show. And you were, what, 20, you're 20 years old? And... The audition, by the way, there's something. I, I don't know if it's if it's all of your audition, but you can see on YouTube. There's oh, black yeah, yeah. there's black and white footage of you sitting on a couch strumming a guitar yeah, yeah. with two guys I don't recognize. Yeah, right. Well, they were probably that would have been about the last sixteen, maybe eight or twelve, uh, 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 you know, audition. You know, people that were, that were, were trying. Like I say, it went on, it went on and on, and they would narrow it down. You know, it was 16. I remember it being about 16. Before that, it was kind of cattle call. Uh-huh. I didn't go to a cattle call because I had already had my own series. <laughs> <laughs> so one had one's own private audition <laughs> with producers and directors. Um, no, the, the, the auditions are there. So what was your question? <laughs> now, now, I want... I, they also made a big deal, like they always do. They try to create feuds. So they would make it like, oh, like the Beatles looked down and hated the monkeys. But it wasn't like that. No, they're, they're, uh, it wasn't the Beatles or us that did that. It was the good old press. Um, the Beatles versus monkey things, no, it, it never existed. First of all, it was years, you know, culturally two or three years in music and culture is a long, long time. We didn't have the same fans even, the Beatle fans. We had the younger brothers and sisters of the Beatle fans because it was good four years later, three to four years later, and the Beatles had gone on to other things. And like I say, this was a television show about a band that wanted to be the Beatles. So, no, there wasn't any... Any feud at all. And and you also sat in on a bunch of the Beatles albums, like Sgt. Pepper. Yeah, whatever happened to that? <laughs> that was really good, Gilbert. And I just like, wow, man. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. So there's an ad placed in the, in the Daily Variety that they're casting this show called The Monk. Was it called The Monkeys from the very beginning? Yes, but spelled, <clears throat> excuse me, but uh, spelled normally just M-O-N-K-E-Y-S. And then some lawyer must have said, you, you can't spell it like that or you'll never be able to get uh, ownership of any branding. So that's when they changed Oh, I love that. There was always a play on the Beatles, misspelling Beatles, that they nope. misspelled monkeys. No, in this case, I think it was more about interesting got a brand. But, uh, you know, a lot of groups were naming themselves after animals. Right, like the animals. Yeah, like the animals. Oh, that makes me remember something, and I don't know if this is total showbiz bullshit, but 
they said um, uh, where one of the songs, one of the monkey songs, you go no no no. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh no no no. Oh it's no. Clarksville. Yes. Last yes. Train to Clarksville. And they said that was because the Beatles were doing yeah yeah yeah. Don't remember that, but that's a good one. It's a great I'll one. Use it. Good Hollywood bullshit. I'll use it. Claim it's true. It's a great story. <laughs> that's a good one. So you well, the best is to the Charlie Manson. And that story about you and the gerbil was. <laughs> well, just just prove the Ma- the Manson one real briefly now that you brought it up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Total bullshit. I made the big mistake once of doing. A, a show back in L.A., back in the early 70s or something or whenever, and I was just screwing around. It was Rodney it was uh, Rodney Bingenheimer, I think, K-Rock or something, and I just made a joke. Oh, yeah, everybody auditioned for the Monkees, you know, Stephen Stills, Paul Williams, and uh, Charlie Manson. Right. And everybody took it as, as gospel, and now it's uh, urban myth. I love it. Didn't Peter Tork get the part because Stephen Stills recommended him? Yes. Yeah. That's true. Interesting. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine Stephen Stills and the monkeys. Yeah, right. So, um, oh, we were talking about, but you actually, aside from going to these, to sit in on the Beatles making their albums, you all were also friends. Yeah, eventually. I mean, um, the uh, initially I met Paul. Did I drop that name? Um, I met Paul on a. It was more like a. We were, I was there on a press junket to England, uh, pr- uh, promoting the upcoming tour, and the publicity people, you know, wanted to do a monkeys meets Beatles thing, and Paul graciously had me over to his house in Abbey Road. I mean, on a, in Maidavale um, for dinner, and we just sat and chatted and took a few photographs, and then he invited me to. Um, this uh, recording session the next day for that uh, that album, Sergeant Bilko, and <laughs> I. Um, that was the album they did with Phil Silver. Yesterday, I love it. Phil Silver says yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, I was like so. I mean, I was such a huge fan, of, first of all. I mean, I was just a huge fan, Beatle fan, of course. And I, I think I had an autograph book. I was like, <laughs> all I could do was not to get his autograph. And um, I, um, they invited me to a session for a, a bunch of stuff they'd been doing and um, uh, at Abbey Road. And the next day I, I went, and I tell this story actually even in my, my solo show, I I, I think I was expecting some kind of Beatlemania, fun fest, freak out, psycho jello, you know, <laughs> loving, being thing. So I got dressed accordingly with my paisley bell bottoms and my tie dyed underwear and my little linen glasses and my hair in beads and curls. And, and the limo picks me up in the middle of the day and I get there at like two o'clock in the afternoon. I look like a cross between. Ronald McDonald and Charlie Manson. There you go. <laughs> and I walk in and I'm like, hey, where are the girls? <laughs> I'm three sheets to the wind. And there's nobody there. There, It's the Abbey Road Studios and there's just the four guys, fluorescent lighting, like my high school gymnasium, 
and they're just playing. And it was John that looked up and said, hey, monkey man. <laughs> you, that's what he called me, monkey man. You want to hear what we're working on? And I'm, like, trying to be so cool, you know. My best hip-wise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, John, cool, man. Yeah, right, far out, man. Yeah. And they played the tracks to Good Morning, Good Morning, which they were working on, the tracking uh, of that. And then we had tea, and we sat down and chatted. And, and then uh, an interesting thing happened that I remember to this day. Uh, the, the guy from EMI the, in a white little suit, um, comes in with tea, four o'clock, and boom, puts the tea down on a little card table. Everybody has tea. Like in 10 minutes or so, John Lennon says, oh, right, lads, back down the mines. Wow. Yeah. And uh, didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, and I know now I realize how they managed to produce that much incredible material. They just worked their butts off 24-7 for those years. And I heard even later that it was John. It was one, he was the one that would say, "Back down he the mines, lads." He was the taskmaster, huh? Interesting. Know, that Northern England uh, work, you know, working class mentality, and they just sat there, you know, by themselves. Just I'm, I'm sure they partied, but at two o'clock in the afternoon, they were there just playing and playing and playing and playing. Yeah, it's interesting. You tell an interesting story about when Monkey Mania first hits. That you were in a mall when you oh, first yeah. when you first had this realization. Oh, you, that, that you heard that? Yeah, I saw you on Oprah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's a good story. Well, watch Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like to repeat myself. <laughs> no, it, it's a great story. It was. Um, December of 66, the show had been on the air for three months, September, October, uh, four months. And we'd been ensconced, of course, in the, in the, uh, the filming. We were 24-7, six days a week, uh, filming the television show, rehearsing, at, uh, recording at night, rehearsing. So we never got out. And we'd heard that the show was on the air and that it was a pretty good reaction. And the record, of course, we knew was like number number one but had no personal sort of interaction with anybody in Hollywood that in those days didn't, didn't happen much anyway. But um, You guys were in the bubble. Yeah, we were in the eye of the hurricane uh, and didn't know it. And um, so uh, Christmas came along. We had a week hiatus for Christmas. And I jumped in my little Ford, you know, my, sorry, Pontiac GTO, which had given me, which they eventually took back, the bastards. Really? That's <laughs> yeah, not right. They took it back. They took the goddamn GTO back. And um, I got my little shopping list, and I went down to the mall in the San Fernando Valley, the same mall I'd shopped at all my life, my parents and my sisters, and you know, for years. And I had my list, and I had about you know an hour or two to go and do my shopping because I had to go up north to see my parents and my sisters. And... and I get on my car and I go through the big sliding glass doors or whatever, and all of a sudden I hear screaming, and people start running towards the door, and I think it's a fire, and I start going, "Yes, this way! Don't panic!" <laughs> and I hold open the door and I'm trying, "Don't panic! Don't run!" You know this, and then of course I realize they're running at me. 
all these kids. And I was really pissed off. I'm like, I got to do my shopping. And I couldn't. I had to get in my car. And I hired my roadie to go do my uh, Christmas shopping. And suddenly And that was the first inkling I got. Yeah. You know. Then when we went on the road, of course, you know, it was pretty apparent. Obviously, we, we lived in a little black box, which is the black box in the movie Head, is the black right. box of us living Interesting. in. From limousine to garbage entrance of hotel to elevator to room, back to garbage entrance to elevator to black box to – that's what that's – Now, now here's another one that I'm sure is bullshit, but you can tell it. And claim it's true that when they did the movie Head, they were planning, they were talking about doing a sequel so just so they can advertise from the people who gave you Head. Absolutely true. <laughs> absolutely true. We joked about that. We, we, That's funny. We absolutely had... Had a great laugh over that. And I think Bob and Bert would have probably gone ahead and done that if there had been another movie. And um, that was a wonderful experience. I, I, I love the movie. You know, I don't, I'm still not sure what it's about entirely. I, well, what, I mean, first of all, a totally unknown screenwriter by the name of Jack Nicholson yep. wrote it. Bob uh, introduced him one day. He, uh, they must have met somewhere, I guess, and were hanging out. He was a B-movie actor. You know, he'd done a few little movies. Uh, yeah, we had Roger Corman yeah. on yeah. the podcast. Yeah, he did a few of... Uh, uh, the movies and Bob introduced him one day to us and said, "This is a guy named Jack Nicholson. He's a actor. He wants to do some writing, and I think he'd be a good collaborator for the, our movie." We had decided, sort of on mass, we did not want to do a, a movie because the idea of the movie had come up, and we didn't want to do a movie that the idea was we did not do a movie that was just a ninety-minute version of the television show. An episode, excuse me, an episode of the TV show. And we all sort of bought into that. You know, we, uh, I did, sir, certainly. I said, yeah, and that's a good idea. Let's do something. Let's get out of the box, you know, a little bit. Because on the TV show, it was so highly, highly restrictive in the censorship. And, you know, you couldn't mention anything. You know, you like, like... <laughs> Faulty Towers, don't mention Zavoie! <laughs> um, we couldn't mention any... I mean, it was highly, highly restrictive. If you remind me, I'll tell you a story about one of the episodes. Um, the censorship. Um, so the, the idea for the movie came along, and we were like, wow, that's cool. And, and Bob brought in this guy named Jack Nicholson, and we just all absolutely fell in love with him. He's so charismatic and so funny and so genuine and real and honest and just wonderful, wonderful character. And so we all were like, yeah. And, um, and we'd agreed we're, we're going to do something different. So we all go mm-hmm. out to a, a golf resort spa in California for a weekend, uh, Ojai. And uh, we're all going to create this movie together and I and there's tapes and I have film of us all sitting around Jack and the four of us and a couple of you know and Bob Rafelson of course and Bert Schneider and a couple of you know uh, in you know uh, um, roadie guys and we start talking and we just talk and talk and talk and talk and it went on for days and then Jack took all of that and meeting me and spending time with me and my family and Mike and Peter and David 
and crafted, you know, that really amazing, weird, weird. Script. It's weird. It's nothing like the series. I mean, not no. only that you that you you had you had free reign to do much more than you could do in the series, but I mean, the, the anti-war stuff. Well, in I mean, the series, like I say, it was NBC, and back then the censorship was just brutal. There was a the best story that I have about that is we did an episode called "The Devil and Peter Tork." Oh, sure. And it was we were talking about Monty Landis before he yeah, played the devil. And he played the devil, and it was uh, obviously damn monkeys. It was Faust, and um, there there was a line in the script uh, where Peter gets you know seduced by the devil and Monty Landis. And I say something like, well, Peter, you can't do that. You can't sell your soul to the devil to play the harp because if you do, you'll go to hell. And the censors came back and said, oh, you can't use the word hell. You cannot say the word hell in primetime network television at 730 on a Monday night. And Bob Ravelson, I heard, he went back to New York. He, like, fought, and he just, like, beat him up. He just, like... He fought for this. He said, are you kidding me? It's Faust. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, and they refused. And they refused. So if you watch the episode, I think what happens, if, if I can remember, is that when that line comes up, I say something like, but Peter, you can't do that, sell your soul to the devil, because if you do, you'll go to that place that you can't mention on network television. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> And I heard, too, during the making of Head, as well as other times, that you and Jack Nicholson and, uh, you know, the monkeys and Jack Nicholson weren't exactly saying no to drugs. I never got that much into drugs. I, 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 I was drinking a little bit, <laughs> and I smoked a lot of weed, and if you consider that heavily into drugs. But um, that was about it. Uh, about the time that uh, the monkeys was over and all that was passing, like coke, cocaine had never even got into the equation yet. The, uh, by the time cocaine started coming in, I was gone. I had moved to England, and so basically, not, it was just weed and and drinking, and not even that much drinking. It was more more weed. Uh, I can't speak for Jack. Because there, there's, there's some talk that he was on acid when he wrote the script. Oh, no. I, I definitely had done a couple acid trips. Uh-huh. Uh, thank God, touch wood, I'd never had any serious uh, side effects or anything. I did the head to picture. And I do not recommend uh, that to anyone. Uh, it's too, too, uh, way too risky, obviously. Um, but, you know, I, <clears throat> I can't speak for anybody else, but I never, you know, first of all, we were, I was too busy. I mean, there wasn't the time. What kind of days certainly. were you guys putting in? You, what kind of days were you putting in? I mean, you were learning songs. Well, you were doing there, a TV series. Well, it was a series. typical sitcom uh, shooting schedule, for starters. Right. Which was uh, six or seven in the morning till seven or eight at night, you know, so 10, 12 hours easily. And then... Uh, we had, to, or I usually had to go in the studio, or or David. We did most. You were the lead singer, yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> and we'd go into RCA, and I would often record three lead vocals a night. Wow! In one in one night, the lead vocals, and then on the weekends we were starting to rehearse for the for the for, for touring. 
So for two to three years, there was just not a lot of time. Then I'd go home and get in my workshop and, and build shit, you know. Yeah. And like I built a, a gyrocopter in my, in my workshop. So there wasn't a lot of time during that period. Post-monkeys, those early 70 years, uh, John's lost weekend years with Harry Nilsson and Alice. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that, the, the Hollywood vampires. I'm told I had a great... <laughs> yeah. The, funnily enough, the Hollywood vampires was a softball team. Interesting. It was a... Alice had started it because we were all into sports. Alice I Cooper. I was playing tennis and Alice... We were playing sport. We were like out there... Playing softball, and I <laughs> trying to picture uh, you I and was, Harry Nielsen and Alice Cooper playing <laughs> softball. <laughs> you should look up uh, and Ringo. Harry Nielsen stuff early seventies. He was a almost, he was a huge basketball player, and really good. I mean, he was tall. He's six mm-hmm. two or three. He would play all the time every week. Um, I was into tennis. I was doing tournaments. I became like a B uh, club. I got to about a B club tennis player in the early seventies. And Alice said, let's start a softball, because uh, we love softball. We play on the weekends uh, and uh, play, like, you know, against other companies or, or LAPD, you know, or we played. I remember once we played a bunch of these kids that were in, um, in a, a, like, a juvie camp, you know. They were, like, borderline, you know, juvenile delinquents. And I remember this really clearly because they beat the shit out of us. It's bizarre. We were a bunch of like rock and rollers, you know, trying to play softball. And these are like hardcore. But they were really good. So this was all about like, a, you know, softball and, and playing. And we, play, we were serious. I mean, we really played hard. And um, then we would go and party at the Rainbow and, and you know, have a post-game kind of thing. Um, but, uh, it, and it was a lot of fun. It was great. But, you know, in answer to your extra, extra. <laughs> Just speaking for myself, I didn't, uh, I, you know, I, touch wood. I, I, I think I always had a governor. You know, I would, like, go up to the edge of the cliff, and then something would, like, you know, suck me back and say, nope, too far. My mom always used to say I had a guardian angel. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Now, also, before I forget, you had, when you were with the Monkees, you had the most amazing group of songwriters. Can you name some of them? Neil Diamond, Neil Sadaka, Neil Armstrong. Really? (laughs) Blue Moon. Yeah. Really? Hey, hey, that's comedy. <laughs> My wife's going, oh, not that stupid line again. <laughs> Mickey, Mickey's wife is here. Got a laugh, honey. That's Give me a break here. Um, well, Carol King and Jerry Goffin. I did a tribute album recently, if I can plug uh, something. Uh, King for a Day. It's a great record. Yeah, a uh, tribute album to Carol King and, and Jerry, of course. And her other songwriter partners, very man Cynthia Weil. I mean, uh, Neil Sedaka, uh, uh, Paul Williams, Carol Bear Sager, Carol Bear Sager, sure. oh, David Every, Gates, yeah, John uh, Stewart from the Kingston John Trio, John Stewart wrote Daydream, Daydream Believer. Believer. Oh my yeah. God, 
Um, and Harry Nielsen, like I said, that's a great story. Sure. <clears throat> Harry and Nielsen. Was Boyce was, Hart? And, and Bo- I'm sorry. And Boyce and Hart. And Boyce and Hart. And yeah. Boyce and Hart. The, the first huge hit, Clarksville. The theme song. That's right. The monkey theme. And Boyce and Hart not only wrote the big, some of the biggest hits we ever had, they produced the early biggest hits we ever had. Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, you could all, almost give them credit for the sound not even almost. They created the sound of the original early monkey songs. Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart not only wrote but produced and created that sound. That was them, and they deserve an enormous amount of credit for that. Um, <clears throat> and they they wrote Stepping Stone. Yeah, I love that one. I mean, uh, you know, just so, so many. Unbelievable great hits. And. I and always. So, oh, go ahead. I was I'm going to tell the Harry Nielsen. Uh, oh, go ahead. So, we're, uh, two or three albums later, we're doing Headquarters when we'd fought for the rights to do the music and all that stuff. The we should just tell, and tell our listeners that was the first album that where you guys had creative control. Yeah. And you got Kirshner out of the picture, Don yeah. Kirshner, and you did your own thing. Right. Uh, headquarters. Headquarters. And, um, uh, the Palace Revolt, and we're in the studio, at recording and doing it all. And the uh, publisher at the time uh, from the publishing company brings in this kid called uh, Harry Nielsen. And Harry was working at a bank at the time. And uh, he told me years later he was doing check and clearances at some bank in Van Nuys or something. And um, they brought him in and they said, this is a guy, Harry Nielsen. He has some songs. And he sat down at a piano, and I, for some reason, I so remember this. And he played Cuddly Toy. And Davy, at the after he finished the song, Davy says, "I'll do that song." Well, years later, Harry tells me because we became very, very close. He says, "I walked out of the uh, the recording studio, and the publisher said to me, you can quit the bank.'" <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and he Good did, story. and of course, he went on to like you know, you know, incredible stuff, you know. Is a wonderful, wonderful guy. I was just uh, out of nowhere thinking, I, I always thought that the theme to Friends was nothing more than a reworking of Pleasant Valley Sunday. Yeah, it's true. And I can't remember who it was that, that I, I went and visited the set at one point, and I can't remember who it was, producer or somebody said, you know, we ripped off your song. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, hey, it's okay. It's cool. Great song. <clears throat> yeah. How, how did you become the drummer, Mickey? Because you weren't a drummer. No, as a guitar player. I yeah. started out playing classical guitar, uh, Spanish guitar, like at 10, about 10 years old. My father had introduced me to it, uh, and I loved it. I was like into uh, Andre Segovia and mm-hmm. stuff. And then when I got into high school, I remember... I'd go to parties, and I'd bring my guitar, and I'd play some Segovia. And the girls would go, do you, do you know any Kingston Trio? <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> By the next party, I hang down your head, Tom. Dooley, hang down your head. <laughs> and uh, so I figured that was the way to go. And then that sort of morphed into rock and roll. And... Um, like I mentioned, my audition piece for the Monkees was Johnny Be Good. But then when I, they cast me, they, I, they said, you're going to be the drummer. 
And I was like, but, you know, but I, I'm a guitar player. And they said, well, we have enough guitar players. Because <laughs> Mike, of course, is a great guitar player. And Peter is incredible musician on like nine instruments. You know, he plays everything all at the same time. It's, and um, they said, no, you're, yeah, we'll cast you as the drummer. And I approached it like I did with Circus Boy when they said, you're going to ride an elephant. I right. just said, I'm an actor. where do I learn? Right. <laughs> where do I start? <laughs> where do I? And I went into fairly intensive uh, lessons playing the drum. But I'd also, you know, been a musician. I, I, I could read music from playing the guitar. And I'd been in, in bands. I'd had some, like, rock and roll kind of cover bands. Is it Mickey Dolan's and the One-Nighters? Mickey Dolan's and the One-Nighters. Because it was one night, but it was... And uh, there was another one, The Missing Links. Oh, yeah. I got fired from The Missing Links. Coincidental, The, the Missing Links and I the know, Monkeys. Yeah. Crazy. Huh? Yeah, I got fired. I remember I was the lead singer. And it was, it was five pieces, four, four uh, guys in the band, and I was the lead singer. And one day we were playing a, a, a cocktail lounge in a bowling alley in uh, Inglewood, <laughs> California. And we went back to their – they had a motel – I, I, was, I lived in L.A., so I, I was home. But we went back to the motel, and they said, we have to let you go. We can't afford a lead singer. Wow. The other guys can sing, and you're not playing. I wasn't playing at that time. I was just singing. We can't afford it because, you know, we get $75 a night. <laughs> Split four, five ways. <laughs> Tough. And I was heartbroken. I was, And I was going to architectural drafting school at the time. And doing this on the weekends and I was I crushed and, and I went back to my little apartment in, in the valley and about I don't know a couple of months later I remember the drummer I'd kept in touch with him and he called me and he said how you doing I said hey, I'm okay and he said I said how you doing he said oh you know we're okay we're doing a bar mitzvah <laughs> and, and I said, oh, cool, cool. Are you doing, you know, money and, uh, you know, Johnny be good? Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, oh, yeah. He said, what are you doing? I said, oh, not much. I'm going to school, doing architecture, drafting. And, and I was up for this show, but I don't think it'll probably make it. And he said, well, what is it? I said, oh, it's a show called The Monkeys. <laughs> now, I, I got to ask you an, an important one for me. I remember... Being a, a kid raised on monster movies, sitting in front of my little black and white TV uh, at home, and they uh, watching the monkeys and Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah. Yeah, he was on the show. Well, we had a lot of great co-stars. Oh, I mean, oh. we had a lit. We, we were talking before. Oh, my. And Rose wow. Marie, Jerry Colonna. I Jerry, mean, we love Jerry Colonna. Can you believe that? So and many people. Lon Chaney Jr., Funnily enough, had lived next door to me when I was a kid in the valley, and so I knew him and his family. And I um, mean, you know, uh, like I said, Rosemarie, Stan Freeberg, Wally Cox, Rip oh, Taylor. What was, what was well, I brought Rip, Rip Taylor, and I was a huge fan, so I cast him into the episode that I wrote and directed. Um, and there were lots of others. Pat Paulson. And, Pat, oh yeah, Pat Paulson. Yeah. And what was Janie like? Who? Lon Chaney. Well, he was just a lovely guy, very sweet, you know. Funnily enough, those those horror mo- monster movie people are always the sweetest, nicest, you know, non-horror. It's always the the good guys that are assholes. <laughs> 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 
that over the years. I mean, it's funny. All the heroes and the, and the really beautiful, you know, like, entrepreneur women are total assholes. Can you name some? No. There's one great story about an actor, a wonderful actor who I admired so much, named Hans Conried. Brilliant character actor, and he did an, an episode, and he was Uncle Tanus. Yeah. Oh, on the, on the Danny Thomas show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the Danny Thomas show. And he used to pop up on Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Great character actor, voice act. Oh, wonderful. So he was on the show once, <clears throat> and just to set this up uh, properly, one of the important elements, as I had mentioned, was this. Uh, improvisational quality that they had inspired. They had trained us. Spontaneity, improvisation, which is wonderful. Back in those days, that didn't happen a lot on network sitcom television. It was usually very scripted, and you'd just read the lines and you'd you'd go home. But they had really, you know, created this environment, which was very, very spontaneous, along with Bob and Bert and Jim Frawley and, and you know, all uh, uh, a lot of the other the writers and a lot of people that were involved. Jim Frawley was from Second City for, with Elaine May and Mike Nichols. So there was this whole, and they encouraged it. They 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 trained us, and so we would let loose, and and um, they would record all the stuff, and then you know, in the editing room, try to put together an an episode. But the problem <clears throat> with that. In, in those days and in that environment, it's a little bit like a, a nuclear reaction, you know, like a fission sort of reaction. If you, if you let it go, it burns it hole through the center of the earth like Fukushima. <laughs> and if you put a lid on it, you kill it. It goes away. So there was this constant, you know, battle. And I can ima- only imagine what it must have, must have been like for Bob and Bert and all these people to keep a lid but let it go, keep a lid but let it go, and try to contain it but not kill it. And so w- at times we would literally bounce off the walls. We would, you know, arrive on the set and it would be like they, we had the, all these separate little dressing rooms where we had our own little environment. And then the assistant director wonderful guy named John Anderson would come out and he'd go, okay, here they come. You know, all right, in three, two, one. And they would let us out like a cages. <laughs> and uh, they're coming to the set, you know, <laughs> take cover, take cover. They're coming. But that's what they wanted, you know, that we would come out of these dressing rooms like, hey. It was like the Marx Brothers. They said they used to keep the Marx Brothers in cages. Well, I'm not surprised, <laughs> but that was the the dynamic behind the, the you know the uh, the show. So we would come out and just literally start bouncing off the walls, and most of the time, thank God, it worked and it was fun and everybody got it. But sometimes, some of the old school people. You know, didn't you know they weren't used to working that way, and I remember Hans Conried came on the show, and I was a huge fan of his, and we had scenes with him, a number of scenes, and uh, there was the one, and they show this, you know, that this is on YouTube. I've seen it. You know, we're out there, and they're trying to record, they're trying to film this scene, and it's like we're just like, hey, and Hans Conrad's trying to do his lines and finally he looks at the camera and he says I hate these fucking kids 
they, they shut down the subway, <laughs> stopped filming, and, wow. you know, I don't even remember, but years later, I was so embarrassed. I was so, I was like, oh, my God, my hero, Hans Conrad, yeah. and he hates me. Oh, God. But that's what they wanted. That's what they had created, this... Right. This, like, uh, you know, fire in the belly. And trained actors just weren't re- ready for that. Well, some. Yeah, yeah. Now, there were others. Yeah. Rosemary, brilliant. She and was in that Stan, episode. A couple. Yeah. A couple yeah. of episodes. Oh. Stan Freeberg. And there were others that got it and, and were able, you know, and also we might not have been as. There were great comedians, too. Pat Paulson, Charlie Callis, oh. Doodles Weaver, Carl Ballantyne, Hardy Lembeck, lots of funny people. And trivia uh, Doodles Weaver. Oh, yeah. Was the hu- uh, the husband the uncle of Sigourney Weaver? Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. more, more interesting. Jerry Lewis yeah. came by one day. The set. Oh he, yeah, he was touted to be a director. I don't even know if I've told that story. No, I remember because I was, of course, a huge Jerry Lewis fan too. And uh, one day, I remember it was you know some, Bob or Bert said Jerry Lewis is coming by. We're thinking about him as a director. And he came by, and uh, I we met him and said, "How are you doing?" And and he said, "You know." Yeah. And then I just remember somebody saying, "Yeah, he doesn't want to do it." <laughs> I think I think it might have scared him a little bit. He could have worked with two generations of Dolenses. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it might have scared him a little bit because it was it was kind of scary. Like I say, it was you never knew what what was going to happen. It was you know. And that's one of the reasons why it only lasted two years. You know, we only did two seasons. 56 episodes. Well, these days it would be four seasons, but back then but it was... It's a, but it's a, it's, a, it's a, you know, the show was ambitious, I mean, for its time. And Time Magazine, and, when, da- when Davey passed, Time Magazine, someone, uh, I can't remember the, uh, the reporter's name, wrote a wonderful oh, yeah. review of the monkeys looking back and yeah. saying it was an ambitious show, it was a smart show. Have you read that uh, chapter in Timothy Leary's book, uh, Politics of Ecstasy? No. It's really interesting, despite what you may think of uh, Timothy Leary. It was uh, very interesting. Politics of Ecstasy is the book. And he writes a chapter about the monkeys saying, well, it's a long thing, dissertation. But essentially, he says they they brought long hair into the living room and made it safe. Because up to Lynn, if you had long hair and more bell bottoms or, you know, you were you know, or committing crimes against nature. The only time you saw long-haired kids in TV, they were getting arrested. And for the longest time, the monkeys were kind of like, became like a punchline. Like, they were this talentless group. They were nobodies, blah, blah, blah. And then over the years, people started really respecting hmm? what came out of the mon- Well, like Mike Nesmith basically created music videos it yeah. seems like he created mtv but <laughs> yeah. today people like tom petty u2 rem kurt cobain brian wilson guns and roses all identify themselves as monkey fans no accounting for taste <laughs> <laughs> tell us about the awards it, you got it, um, it, um, the what? tell us about the award you got uh, tell us about the honor you got in new york city last night Oh, it was Lifetime Achievement for Broadway, uh, uh, Rockers on Broadway. Um, we've done it for years, 10, 15 years or something, uh, raising money for Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS, and now the PATH Foundation and for Broadway Dreams and stuff because I got involved with it with 
uh, Donnie Kerr, who um, was actually my understudy in Aida when I did it on the road, mm-hmm. and we just became great friends. and And um, I started doing the the shows with him to raise money. It started out for uh, Broadway Cares. Yeah. It's great. And you were going to say something right before. Um, I guess we were talking about, you know, how the monkeys have respect now. You know, I, I don't have any control over that. Uh, there were a lot of people at the time who just didn't get it. I call them the hip And a lot of the people in TV and and in the music industry, because it's the first time that anything like that had ever happened on television. It had happened in films many times with West Side Story or or people being cast into... And in films, Johnny... uh, uh, Sorry, um, what was that movie about the guitar player? Um, You know... um, Johnny Cash? Uh, uh, the jazz guitar player. Uh, oh, the, the Woody Allen movie? No. Uh, anyway, so in films, the tradition is is ripe with fame and with other musical movies. But for television to do that in the early 60s was un, unheard of. There was, there was nothing like that to meld music and... TV and recording companies and the record industry that hadn't really ever happened before a little bit of crossover with Paul Williams and I mean not Paul Williams um, Paul Peterson in the Donna Reed show or Ricky Nelson, Ricky Nelson. sure but to come out with this concerted assault on the American consumer where everything was connected and it Frankly, it pissed a lot of people off. You know, the, the the record industry, as we know at the time, was very, very powerful. And the radio industry was very powerful. And all of a sudden, this thing comes out of nowhere, left field. And, the, and I had this happen to me years later. Radio stations would say, fuck them, you know. They, they had to play the music. There wasn't any backhanders. There wasn't any payola. There wasn't any. They had to play this music. They had no choice. And they didn't like that. They were pissed off. And there was a lot of pissed off radio and record people that said, you know, because we hadn't come up the chain of, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, sure. and, and done the deals and, and, you know. And it wasn't even us. It, you know, the four of us, we were just hired hands. It was the producers and NBC and RCA Victor. All of a sudden, there was this uh, dynamic. There was this train, excuse the pun, this inertia created by this television show. And these radio stations and these record companies, they had to play the stuff. They had to sell it and they had to play it. And they were really pissed off. <laughs> you know, because we hadn't, you know. And now I also heard stories that when they were doing the reunions of the monkeys, and usually Mike Nesmith didn't want to be part of those. Mm-hmm. And um, but I heard the three of you would get along for about five minutes, and then you hated each other after that. Not yeah. true. No. No. <laughs> N- not not accurate. 
Uh, do you have any brothers or sisters? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Do you They're get not speaking along to with him your whole no. life? <laughs> okay. Do you get along with him your yes, whole yeah, life? Yeah. Every minute of every moment oh, oh. of your whole life. When you're in, involved with people uh, like that for so many years and such an emotional, uh, intense environment, working, off working, day in, day out... No, of course you don't. For get five along. decades. For five decades, yeah. of course you don't get along every minute of the day. Uh, sometimes incredible creative differences, um, but that's usually what it was—a creative difference. And you hear about that all the time. You hear about that with actors and a director in some stupid movie or bands. I mean, look at God love them, the Beach Boys. I mean, or look at even Lennon and McCartney. Look at you know that is a natural. Simon and Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. Uh, you, I mean, the list goes on about yeah. creative teams. Rogers and Hammerstein. Right. They, they'll <laughs> joke about putting lyrics under the door. You know, come on. I mean, Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, you know, that creative uh, uh, headbutting is, A, what creates the brilliance and can destroy it. And can cause it's part of the equation, and that those creative you know differences can be problematic, or they and and they can be brilliant, but they're like part of the equation. Before we run, yeah. Mick, anything yeah. you want to plug or anything coming up? You're still performing. Yeah, I uh, I have a gun running business to Afghanistan. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, so if, if you're in Afghanistan and you need some Perfect. like 50 caliber row bars, I'm the guy to go to. Well, well, <laughs> no, I uh, I'm doing solo shows. I have this wonderful uh, furniture business with my daughter. <laughs> yeah, I saw that on Oprah. I'm telling you, it's one of the most wonderful things I've ever done in my life. I have a, a furniture business because I told you I, I do shop work all the time. I have a wonderful uh, business making uh, handcrafted fine furniture with one of my daughters, Georgia. I'm writing, co-writing a, a book with my daughter Amy. Uh, a- Amy, book. the uh, she was an actress, the Amy, oh, beautiful yeah, she still girl. Does. She's out of control, and she now is a children's book illustrator, uh, quite successful one. And we're doing a new book together. And I do touring, and I do this, and and that. the 50th anniversary in 2016. You never know. You might. know, we might get together uh, and, be wonderful. and see what happens. I ho- I hope so. You never know. Well, I'm tired of talking to yeah, you. Yeah, you and me. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe the other monkeys didn't hate you, but I'll continue to hate you. <laughs> so. <laughs> So, Thank you so we, much, folks. <laughs> oh, Mickey, it was great. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for doing it, Mick. Uh, we have been talking Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre to the legendary Mickey Dolans of the Monkeys. Thank you, Mickey. Thanks, Mickey. Thank you. <laughs>